And today is Pentecost Sunday, as has been mentioned. And I want you to know that's a tying in of what happened to Moses, as Jason spoke about last week, on the Mount Sinai, where God gave him the law, gave him the commandments. And then what happens in the upper room in the book of Acts to the early disciples, where they're filled with the Spirit. So you have the Word and the Spirit. You have the combination of the two, and we're the generation that get to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of God's Word. And today we're going to have Jesus open the curtains a little bit and show us some things that are sobering. Show us some things that are going to challenge us. Show us some things that are going to help us. And I want you to look up here for a second. I want you to look right in my eyes. The two of them that are closed. Because these are just tattoos over my eyelids. (laughs) But I want you to know, when you're a pastor, and you have to share sober stuff, it's sometimes really difficult. And today's talk will be difficult. There'll be some things that will be said that are going to challenge you enough that if you really are a follower of Jesus, you will seek that out in God's Word for yourself, and that you will come away fully persuaded, fully convinced that what God says is true about human life. What He says about life, what He says about death, what He says about you and I. He's going to reveal himself through his word as a God who loves perfectly each and every individual person. When you think about how much God loves you, the person sitting beside you that's annoying you right now, he loves them just as much as he loves you. And when you try to leave the parking lot and somebody cuts you off, Jesus loves them as much as he loves you. And I'm going to watch you sitting behind the wheel of your car going, you love them, don't you, Jesus? But I got places to go and things to do, and they better get out of the way. And secondly, every single human being on the planet has an eternal destiny. Every single one. That means you have an eternal destiny. The person beside you has an eternal destiny. So when we begin to appreciate God's love that we can't even comprehend, and also his purposes and his plans for humanity that we don't always understand, we have to come to the realization that in our culture, there's a pervasive thought that anyone who has seen the Lord, anyone who has seen God, uh, there's no way that they would reject Him. If we really see Him, there's no way that we would reject Him. Well, we're going to unpack that a little bit today, and we're talking about a series on countercultural mission. How do we remain disciples of Jesus Christ after we've gone through listening and loving and leading? How do we take our discipleship and live it out in the context of the culture that's different than the kingdom? So let's get something straight right from the beginning. When we live a counter-cultural life, 
It doesn't mean that we become these radicals for Jesus that cause problems everywhere they go, that try to correct everyone else all the time, that just become difficult people to be around. We're not that kind of people. Why? Because the love of God for people is a priority for us. And their eternal destinies at stake. I have friends in my acquaintance that I know are not serving the Lord. I know if their heart were to stop beating right now, they would be separated from God forever and forever. And the challenge of that is, Lord, how can I be an able minister of the new covenant in their lives in such a way that I can be like Jesus to them where I reveal the love of God and I reveal the reality of life eternal? I don't want to miss any opportunity. I want to be a blessing to everyone I'm around. And just for any of you that ride motorcycles, I just want you to know they're the greatest community in the city. When you consider every single weekend they are giving money to charities all over our community. Yesterday we raised, for just for Safe Families, Ottawa, we raised over $1,500. People just will, they'll drop money in a bucket, they'll put it in a boot, they'll put it in a gas tank. I mean, we have all kinds of ways. So all through the summer when you see motorcycles, please watch for them when you drive your car. I go by some of people in the car and I look and they're on their phone. The other day I drove by a lady who was reading a book. <laughs> had the book on her steering wheel. I wished I'd had a two by four. Poke it through the window, bop her in the back of the head and say, you're causing a problem for me here reading a book while you're driving your car. People, you can't multitask and do it well. None of us can, you gotta keep focused. So, we're going to work through countercultural mission in the spirit of Jesus. If you really wanna be counterculture, be like him. That's the key here. To be more like Jesus is to be more effective in everything that you do every day. Countercultural mission is each follower of Christ serving as a faithful presence by trusting in God's power and living differently than the cultural norms. So last week we looked at Moses and his calling and how he stepped aside to see what was going on as a way of indicating that he wanted more in his life and God was starting to move on him and Moses was willing to respond. Today, with sober hearts, we want to expose something that we hear often, it's said, but it's not true. So let's affirm once again, God is more loving than we could possibly imagine. Tuck it in. And God is more holy than can we ever comprehend. So we take things lightly, he doesn't. When you look at the cross, that is the love of God and on the flip side, the wrath of God for sin. So he's more holy than we can even imagine. And because these two things are equally true, when it comes to eternity, often people say, if I saw God, there'd be no way that I would reject him. And yet, when we hear that statement, 
as we go through this, you're going to realize that's not a true statement. In The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis once said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And then those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy, unspeakable and full of glory, will ever miss it. Keep in mind, when you study God's word, you realize you were created in the image and likeness of God. And because of that, I, how many have pets? I'm going down that road again. How many have pets? Little Fufu may have a personality, but Fufu doesn't have a spirit that allows itself to commune with God. Animals don't. They have been created with instinct and they serve their purpose in the earth, but you and I have been created in the image and likeness of God and we can think we can act, we can respond, we can worship, we can commune. And every so often, <clears throat> you can look in the mirror in the morning and go, I am. I'm conscious of myself. My daughter asked us a question when we were on <clears throat> a little trip down to, uh, in between Nashville and Memphis. Do you have some water, babe? <clears throat> if you give me some water, you won't lose your reward. Thanks. I told her before the service, I won't need it. <clears throat> Is it dry in here? So Kim says, where, do, where are you conscious of yourself? I thought, what? What kind of question is that? And she said, I'm right behind my eyes. Someone else in the car said, I'm aware right here. I am too when I'm hungry. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm aware here in, inside my head of my being. Fufu is not aware. Fufu just does what Fufu does. But you're aware so that when Rhonda says, put your hands out and let's just be in a receiving mode, you can respond to that. Try that with Fufu. Not gonna happen. Doesn't matter how wonderful the praise worship music is. Not gonna happen. <clears throat> so when it comes to the realization of things eternal and we're created in the image and likeness of God and we have a purpose in the earth and the whole of creation was designed by God to support us, to allow us to live in such a way as that we can see his majesty and his goodness and his holiness. Turn in your Bible to Romans chapter one for me for just a moment. I want us to see something that I think will help you as much as it helps me. Paul was trying to address culture that was very different than from what he grew up in. And so, He's wanting to help them, and he, verse 19, <clears throat> he recognizes that everyone will make excuses, but there's no room for excuses. 
And culture will say things like this, well, there is no God, and it doesn't really matter how you live your life, just kind of be within the, the rules of the society you live within. And um, religion's all the same, and it doesn't matter what God you serve or you don't serve, that's just a creation of man. We hear those things all the time. But Paul says this in Romans chapter 1, verse 19, what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, everybody say invisible. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. What's the next statement? So that they are without excuse. So every day you go out into your day and you look up at a blue sky and beautiful trees and sunshine and you begin to experience the gift of God in creation, it didn't just happen. When we look into the universe and we see the planets and we realize, wow, how magnificent and how large the universe really is you begin to see the magnitude of God. I just want you to know, put your hands up like this. His fingerprints are on everything. Police know when a crime's been committed and they find fingerprints, it directs them to someone. I just want you to know the whole of creation has his fingerprints all over it so that they are without excuse. We want to demonize God as, as people. We want to put all the onus on him. And he's given everything to point to himself. He's a good ambassador. He's demonstrating his love to us. When you sit on the deck of a, of a dock and you're just enjoying the sunshine, just say, Lord, thank you for the sunshine. Thank you for the tan. See, some people are born and they've already got the tan. I got to work at this all the time and I have to use all kinds of cream to keep me from scratching all night. I love the creation that we're part of. Every kindred, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every color, every different look reminds me of the incredible magnitude of the God that I serve. It makes life wonderful. It stretches us. So when people say there's no way after seeing God that people would still reject him, hmm, that's not a true statement. <laughs> that's something we need to unpack. So regardless whether it's true that people see God and then change, <clears throat> Jesus tells a profoundly sobering story. So here's where you need to put your seatbelt on. Okay? How many know that Jesus is God manifest in the flesh? That's who he is. And that God cannot lie. Cannot. So what Jesus is going to do is he's going to open the curtain and he's going to peel back some understanding of what's beyond death's door. He's going to help us see that there are eternal issues that during our lifetime we need to deal with and make a decision. 
And so in Luke 16, verses 19 to 31, he tells the story. He said, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. But at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Jesus is painting this picture of someone who could buy anything, anytime, and doesn't have to rely on anyone but himself. And in living life, is just living life to the full and enjoying everything that he can do as a rich man. But no thought of God. And the poor man's desperate. He just wants a few crumbs that fall off the rich man's table. That's all he needs. And yet he's sick, and he's covered in sores, and the dogs are licking it. Think about it. But here's what happens. Jesus said the poor man died, and he was carried by the angel to Abraham's side. The context is a Jewish Messiah speaking to a Jewish culture in the context of the culture that Abraham is the father of faith. So he's the center point here in the story to be able to help us realize why the rich man and the poor man are going through what they're going through. So the poor man is carried by angels. How wonderful. To Abraham's side. And the rich man died and was buried. How's that? But in Hades, or the place where the unbelieving dead are, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of the finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in anguish in the flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime receive your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now, everybody say, but now. There's coming a moment where the decisions of your life are going to be right before you. And you're going to ask yourself, did I make the right decisions based on the right information that was available to me? And that's where you and I come in. We're to be ambassadors of the kingdom of God. We're to represent the, cult the kingdom culture wherever we go, the values of the culture, the beliefs of the kingdom culture. We're to be able to say to people, here's what the scriptures teach, here's what God has revealed. Think about these things. Because all of us at some point have been intersected by the purposes of God and we started a walk of discovery. And then we reached a point where we gave our life to Christ. And if you haven't done that, I'm going to encourage you to do that today. But now, hmm, what an interesting moment. The poor man is being comforted and the rich man is in anguish. It's a complete reversal of how they live their lives. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able. 
and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Too late for evangelism at that point. He may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Who's telling the story? Jesus is telling the story. And he is about to go to a cross, be buried in a tomb, be raised on the third day. He's going to come from the grave as a living Savior, and people are going to have to deal with him. And he's telling the story that if they won't believe in one who was raised from the dead, then neither will they believe the prophets, neither will they believe Moses, neither will they believe what God has made available to us in his word. You know, when you hold the Bible in your hand, you're talking about 1,500 years of oral traditions. How many know when someone introduces themselves to you, sometimes you forget their name pretty quick? When you live in an oral tradition culture, your memory is highly trained and everything that is important in the culture from the time you're a little baby, your parents recite that into you over and over and over again so that by the time you grow up, you know the stories by heart. You can recall them, you can remember them. So when we see what God Holy Spirit did moving on authors, 40 of them, to write out the Word of God, no wonder in Jewish tradition, the first five books of the Bible, they almost know by heart because it's recited over and over and over again. But God's Word is meant to lead us somewhere. It's meant to introduce us to someone. It's to help us understand how do we live in the culture that we're a part of now? And how do we make a difference in those that have yet to understand or to know or to follow the Lord? And so Jesus is confronted with the statement that we started with, there's no way after really seeing God that people would still reject God. Jesus is God in the flesh. And all people die, the story says, rich and poor alike. Hades, the place of the unbelieving dead. Abraham's side, the issue called paradise. Because God's story is still unfolding. It's not complete yet. So you remember the thief on the cross that turns to Jesus and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what does Jesus say to him? This day you'll be with me in paradise. So these are terms that are talking about what's beyond this life that you and I live. And the fixed chasm where none can pass from one to the other. I've always thought when I first became a Christian, the worst moment for any human being that is an unbeliever is when that moment comes where we all stand before God and we see the majesty of who he is and the beauty of all that he has created and hear those words, depart from me, I never knew you. We never had intimacy of relationship. You don't want to be a cultural Christian, which means you just know about the things of God. You don't know him. 
You want to be able to know him intimately and deeply so that you'll hear the expression, come into the kingdom prepared for you since the foundation of the world. Incredible moment to stand there and see it all and know that you missed it all. And every time you hear the word of God being proclaimed, every time you run across something that reintroduces you to the things of God, I want you to know that's an opportunity for you to take advantage of the opportunity in the lifetime of the opportunity. That's why the Bible says now is the appointed time. Don't set that aside. Respond to it. And when you respond to it, when Jesus pulls the curtain back and says, this is what I want you to be aware of, don't push it aside. This is God speaking through the person of his son. And the scripture goes on to say that the rich man was really concerned about his five brothers. And he wanted Lazarus to finally help him. But it was too late. And when someone says, no way after seeing God that people would still reject God, here's what Jesus says in verse 31. We just read it. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. In our culture, the idea of hell often becomes an indictment on the character of God. How can a loving God send anyone to hell? Which dismisses the character of God and dismisses the reality that human beings have free will. You chose to come here today. I hope nobody pushed you in the door. <laughs> that you chose to come. You chose to get in the house of the Lord on Pentecost Sunday and you chose to worship the Lord and to bless the Lord. You chose to do that. And so when we understand that God is not sending anyone there, their will is sending them there. They're making a decision. I don't want you in my life. The scriptures go on to tell us that some interesting things happened when people th think that there's a defect in the character of God and that he would do this. But it's called the hardness of the heart in humanity. When we looked at Moses last week and he steps aside into his calling, he realizes he's going to be sent back to Pharaoh's house and just like a piece of wax and a piece of clay, the sun is going to shine on both of those elements and the, what the intent of the element is is where it's going to respond to the sun. The wax is going to do what? It's going to melt. It's going to soften. But what's going to happen to the clay? It's going to get harder and harder. So when God's word comes to Pharaoh's life, the Bible says he hardened his heart. God didn't harden his heart. God just said, let my people go to worship me. No. Let my people go. No. The more God spoke to him, the harder his heart got. That's why now is important in your life, because you don't know that you got tomorrow. You don't even know if you got the rest of today, because your heart could stop just like that. There's no guarantees. And Jesus calls 12 disciples to walk with him, 
and they walk with him, they talk with him, they live with him for three and a half years, they all hear the same teaching, they witness the same miracles, they see lives being transformed, they have personal tender moments with Jesus, and he says to them, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets escorted into the presence of the Father except by me. And Philip, one of the disciples who knows the stories of the Bible from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, all the way through, and he goes, uh, Jesus, could you uh, like show us the Father? And that'd be enough. And Jesus looks at him and goes, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? What kind of moment do you think that was for Philip? It was a whoops. I've just made a boo-boo. Whoever has seen me, Jesus said, has seen the Father. Want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. Want to know how God thinks? Look at Jesus. You want to know how to be a countercultural missionary? Look at Jesus. How can you say, Philip, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority. So who's really pulling back the curtain here? The Father's pulling back the curtain through the vehicle of his Son so that every human being can know what's ahead, what destiny they can have. The Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me, I'm in the Father and the Father's in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Philip, who else has been raising the dead? Who else has been opening the eyes of the blind? Who else has been healing the cripple? Who else has been cleansing the leper? No one else, and no one else can do that, but only God can do that. Philip, if you've seen me, and you've seen the actions, you've seen my Father. You've seen God. Now here comes the sober part. Judas spends 30,000 hours with Jesus personally. He's walking with God. He's doing all the things that everyone else is doing, all the disciples. But he is a cultural disciple. He has not committed himself to Christ. He has walked with him. He's enjoyed his company. He's enjoyed the benefits and all that goes with it, but his heart has remained hardened, and when it comes to the moment that Jesus is going to go to the cross, he betrays him with a kiss. And when he betrays him and gets the 30 pieces of silver in his hand, that's all he was looking for in Jesus. There was a prophecy a number of years ago that was said this way. Some of you have only married me for my money. And when we heard that in the meetings, our hearts went, mm. why do you follow Jesus? The intent is we follow him because we love him. We follow him because he's the way, the truth, and the life. We follow him because he's the one that saved us. He's the one that's the substitute on the cross for us. His life for our life. 
What Jesus went through, you and I deserve. These are sober things. The Pharisees watching another Lazarus be raised from the dead after being dead four days said to themselves, we've got to find a way to kill this man. Why? Because Jesus was interfering with their authority and their prestige in the community. Can I just let you know, Jesus will interfere with lots of stuff in your life and mine. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And so let's finish by understanding that Jesus has not returned yet because he loves every single person and he wants their destiny to be secure in him. And Peter says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And we know this one, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Perish meaning be excluded from the et eternal purposes that God has. Now, we're gonna have an English lesson in one second. Just look up on the screen. We have some brackets that are up there. And if you're an English teacher, just, just have some grace for me. When you look at that diagram, I want you to understand in the, what we would call the curly bracket on the outside, God calls all of us into his kingdom for service in his kingdom and outside his kingdom. That we serve no matter what, wherever we go, that's part of the calling that we all carry. And then the square brackets, God calls some people out of that into ministry into leadership positions in the life of the church. And then in parentheses, sometimes God will call people to a ministry assignment or a position. In other words, God's at work all the time in all of us, moving us forward in his eternal purposes. And the challenge, I think, for all of us is to come to terms with, is Jesus telling the truth or is this just a myth? Reality is it's the truth. And because it's the truth, this truth sets you free. It sets you free to make a decision for him right now when you have the opportunity. So I'm gonna ask you to stand and Joyce is gonna come back. And we're gonna do a couple of things here. I know it's, it's getting on a little bit, but that's okay. Eternal lives are at stake. If you're online watching us, I want you to know that Jesus Christ loves you and he really does have a purpose and a plan for your life. And he is calling you into that purpose and into that plan. But if you don't know him, today's the day for you to open your heart and ask him to forgive you of your sin and to invite Jesus to be Lord of your life. If you know him and you're already walking with him, because today's Pentecost Sunday, I want you to know that you have on the outside a physical body that the real you is inside. Your spiritual life is inside. 
And so just as you have naturalized, you have spiritualized. Just as you have natural ears, you have spiritual ears. And just as you have a natural heart, you have a spiritual heart. In other words, there's a real you living inside this body. And the day of Pentecost, Holy Spirit came, filled the 120 that were in the room, every single one of them that were waiting for the promise of the Father, and he filled them to overflowing. What's the first thing that happened? Their spirits suddenly had a language that they could speak out. And they began to praise God in all the known languages of the people that had come into the city to celebrate the feast. But at the same time, a spiritual prayer language was released through them that gave them edification, that strengthened them, that built them up so that they could then go out and do what God wanted them to do. That was the day the church was birthed into the world. It had already been birthed in the heart of God before the foundation of the world. But it took this moment in time to push the church out of the upper room to go out and do countercultural ministry, and they did. Joyce mentioned it earlier. Peter stands up and preaches one message, and 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. Healings take place. Divine things start happening. Why? Because there's faith in the people to believe God, to go out, out into their culture and be countercultural and make a difference. So put your hand over your heart. Father, as we pray, we ask you today, Lord Jesus, if we don't know you, today's the day we say yes. We don't want to be like the rich man. We want to be like Lazarus. We want to make decisions in this life, even when it's tough, to be able to step into your presence that moment that our heart stops beating. And Father, if we're not filled with the Holy Spirit yet, may this be the day. May this be the day, even this afternoon during prayer time, Father, do an incredible work in the midst of us as a people, filling us to overflowing, that we can be edified and strengthened to do the work that you call us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.